Hello and welcome to episode 26 of The Jared White Show, recorded March 7th, 2019. I'm your host, Jared White, and I invite you to join me in a curated celebration of the corporation that is Apple. Ha 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 ha! See what I did there? <laughs> yes, my fellow netizens, today's episode will be a little bit different. I got a ton of subjects to talk to you about regarding all things Apple. But first, I'm going to dive into the link segment and get that out of the way. It'll be a brief one this time around. So make sure you stick with it and tell the meta segment and hear how Ubuntu Linux ate my iMac and much more. Also, a couple of quick housekeeping things to tell you. Uh, First, I've rebranded and redesigned my email newsletter, and it now has a name. It now has its own identity, and it's called Markup This. Yes, with an exclamation point at the end. So Markup This is my new email newsletter. It has its own shtick. So be sure to go to jaredwhite.com slash newsletters and check that out, and please subscribe. I'll be writing content there that you won't see anywhere else. Uh, It might be a little bit more personal, maybe a little bit more snarky than you'll see on Twitter or Mastodon or other more public avenues. Uh, So I highly encourage you to check that out. Uh, And then second and last, I want to let you know that my Patreon tiers are not all created equal. So if you go to patreon.com slash essentiallifejared, Uh, You can certainly become a supporter of this show and my other content efforts, and that's greatly appreciated. Uh, But the top tier at $49 a month actually gets you some real benefits, and I just want to outline those real quick. Um, I will actually personally discuss with you your interests, your needs regarding open web software and getting set up with your own personal cloud. So just to give you an example, a good friend of mine just signed up for that tier And I'll be helping him get a private blog set up on his own server where he can have uh, posts to specific individuals. So it's not Facebook private groups or private messages. It's on somebody's own website, on a blog, on a server they control. um, But it's only available to select few that they designate. So if that's something you want to get into, if you want to have your own blog for family and friends... That's just one example of something I can help you get set up with. Another example is I'm using Nextcloud myself to manage files and now to manage my calendars as well. I'm switching off of iCloud calendars onto Nextcloud calendars. That's data that's on my own server that I control using open source software like Nextcloud. Uh, So if you want me to help you get set up with something like that, yes, indeed. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash essentiallifejared and sign up for that $49 a month tier and you'll get exclusive access. All right, enough for my sales pitch. On to the link segment. First off here, an awesome video put together by Ryan Ozawa. It's called Mastodon 101, and it's a really awesome overview of what Mastodon is, the popular federated social networking platform. Uh, Well, I should say platforms, because there's just hundreds, if not thousands, of instances of Mastodon running all over the world. So you can sign up for any instance you want. And if you don't even know what the heck I'm talking about, what the heck is an instance, this video is for you because Ryan goes into all that. He goes into what makes Mastodon interesting, what makes it similar to something like Twitter, while at the same time, what makes it totally different. So I highly encourage you to check that video out if you don't know anything about Mastodon or if you're just curious to find out a little bit more about it. And even if you're somewhat of a seasoned pro, it's good to just get a quick overview once again of how it all works because Maybe it'll give you some ideas for how to pitch Mastodon to your friends and get them to sign up. I'm having a blast on Mastodon. I just love it. It's basically become my number one social platform that I go to on a daily basis. Uh, Reddit, of course, is also something that's popular. Uh, I do still use Twitter, but uh, it's a mixed bag over there on Twitter. But Mastodon always brings a smile to my face. So check that out. Uh, Next up, Stephen Trotton-Smith has become quite a name in the Apple community because of his sleuthing into all sorts of interesting goodies that might be coming up in future Apple platforms. He digs through private APIs and, and files to try to pull interesting little bits of code and strings and things that might indicate where Apple's going next. 
And his latest project is called Marzipanify. <laughs> what a name, huh? Marzipanify. <laughs> and what that is, is his little tool that helps you take an iOS app that you've developed, or possibly even an iOS app that somebody else developed, even one of Apple's apps, and turn it into an app that will run on the Mac via this so-called Marzipan framework. So if you're not familiar, Marzipan is a code name for this new technology Apple's working on that will basically let you port iPad apps and possibly even iPhone apps over to the Mac. And they basically run on the Mac as Mac OS apps, but they're basically the same app that you would run on your iPhone or iPad. Uh, even a lot of the controls and a lot of the interactions look and feel the same on the Mac as they do on iOS. Uh, which is a little strange, to be honest, and has caused some consternation among longtime Mac fans. Um, but I'll have way more thoughts to share with you on this topic in my meta segment. Um, but I just wanted to share this link with you all about Marzipanify and how it works. It's really fascinating. It's a really cool glimpse into what might be coming in the future for the Mac platform. Uh, next up, the new USB 4 spec has been announced. Yes, even though we're already looking at USB 3.0 updates and everyone's been talking about that, uh, USB 4.0 is coming on a little bit later and it promises a whole lot. It's basically Thunderbolt. Yes, Thunderbolt and USB 4.0 seem to be a singular merged technology with huge bandwidth and it's sort of the, the one... <laughs> the one connector, the one interconnect technology to rule them all. It's what we've all been waiting for, uh, because even though Thunderbolt and USB currently share a single connector type, USB-C, uh, you can't use Thunderbolt devices on a port that's only USB. So you might have a USB-C cable, and you think, oh, there's a USB-C thingy here and a USB-C thingy there. It should just work, and it might not, which is super frustrating uh, so, you know, I, I think everybody has been wishing for a long time now that you could just have one kind of port, one kind of cable, and that's it. It does everything. If you want to be a USB device, that's fine. If you want to be a Thunderbolt device, that's fine. Whatever the bandwidth it needs, it'll get, and you just roll with it. So I'm hoping it's not 100% certain yet. These are early days for USB 4. It hasn't been sort of officially ratified. It's just been announced in a sort of preliminary form. But I'm really crossing my fingers here that USB 4 will be this future interconnect technology that will rule them all and we'll all be much happier for it. And that wraps it up for the link segment today. Told you it would be short. So this gets us to the meta segment, and I just want to run down the list of topics I'm going to dive into to whet your appetite here. I'll tell you how I managed to destroy my iMac. <laughs> Total meltdown. I'll get into that and what the heck I was up to. I want to tell you about this really awesome iPad Pro case I've been using that is shockingly inexpensive. Uh, I want to share my thoughts on Touch ID versus Face ID because I'm currently using an iPad Pro with Face ID, but I still have a phone with Touch ID. And it's really interesting to compare and contrast how those two technologies work. Uh, I want to go a little bit more into the USB-C lifestyle and Dongle Town and all that that's uh, going on currently. Um, further discussion on Marzipan and what it means for iPad apps to come to the Mac. My WWDC 2019 wish list. OLED versus LCD iPhone displays, and finally, the future of the Mac Pro and the MacBook Pro. So if any of those topics are of interest to you, keep listening. I also created chapter stops, of course. So if you're using a podcast player with chapter stop support, uh, feel free to jump ahead to any of those chapters or just keep on listening. <sighs> yeah, I did that. <laughs> I destroyed my iMac. But it wasn't entirely my fault, I swear. <laughs> so here's what happened. I was using my iMac one day, and I thought to myself, you know, this is an awesome machine, but it's running macOS, and macOS is not free software, free in the sense of Libre. Yes, I know the underlying 
Darwin kernel and some of the innards are technically open source. Although I'm not even sure Apple publishes a lot of that stuff in a timely fashion. It might be like one or two versions behind at this point. I don't know. But anyway, I'm basically using closed source technology on this awesome computer. And I'd really like to try out some open source stuff. So, you know, an, an operating system and environment that is open source, because I'm such a huge fan of open source. And I use Ubuntu on the server side constantly, like on a daily basis. I run and administer all kinds of servers, and they're all running Ubuntu. And it's just fantastic to use on the server. And I wanted to try it out as a desktop OS. So here's what I did. I got a USB stick. It's actually pretty cool. It's USB-A and USB-C both uh, on either end, so you can switch back and forth, which I really like. Got a 32 gigabyte USB stick, and I installed an ISO of Ubuntu onto the stick, and I was able to boot up my iMac in Ubuntu off of this USB stick. All right, victory. Well, <laughs> not quite because Ubuntu did not recognize my Bluetooth peripherals, so no trackpad, no keyboard. That was frustrating. I had to go grab a wired keyboard and wired mouse, and that did work. I also had some problems with getting the Retina display in my iMac to actually work right. It was in this like teeny tiny screen resolution where I could barely make out any of the words or icons, and it took a while to figure that out. But finally, I got to the point where it was pretty usable, and I was excited to, to really dig into it. But uh, when you just install an ISO of Ubuntu onto a USB stick, it's ephemeral. It, anything you do there doesn't really persist. If you reboot the computer, you're back to a pristine uh, environment. So what I really want to do is do a full install of Ubuntu. But I wanted to install it on the USB stick. I wanted to have a bootable USB drive that I could just plug into my computer and you know, actually run Linux on my computer that way. So I fired up the Ubuntu installer within the, uh, you know, the trial version that was running. And it provided an option for me to install on a drive that said 30 gigabytes. And I was like, okay, well, this is probably my 32 gigabyte stick. And it's, you know, reporting what is actual capacity on the, because, you know, there's sometimes a mismatch between what gets reported and what the packaging says. So I was like, oh, okay, this is a 30 gigabyte drive. I want to install Ubuntu on it. Awesome. So it did its thing. It installed it. And let me just be clear here. That was the only option other than my big one terabyte hard drive, which I totally didn't want it to touch. In fact, I was like super nervous to even like run this installer because like I just didn't want to mess up anything on my iMac. But it gave me the option of installing this 30 gigabyte drive. And I was like, OK, great. That's what I want to do. It installed. It rebooted. And it loaded up Ubuntu. I thought, okay, great. Well, I want to reboot into macOS and make sure everything's cool there. And off we go. So I reboot and hold down the Option key to make sure I can boot into the Mac. You know, because if you hold down the Option key on a Mac, it comes up a little bootloader screen where you can pick, you know, one or more bootable drives that you have connected to your machine. And there was no macOS. There was no macOS boot. And I totally freaked out. I mean, <laughs> talk about adrenaline, hearts pounding, my head's getting woozy. I'm like, what the bleep happened to my Mac install? Where's Mac OS? <laughs> uh, so I poked around a little bit. I booted into Ubuntu and tried to figure out what was going on. I tried to get back into the bootloader to see if there were any more options there. Just nothing uh, I finally, uh, with a different machine, looked up some instructions on how to do the special uh, recovery mode, where it literally had to do a little spinning globe and download a recovery OS from an Apple server to run on the computer. And once that came up, I could go into uh, Disk Utility and try to find out what's going on. Well, as I poked around there for a while, it slowly dawned on me what was going on. This is what happened. I installed Ubuntu on a 30 gigabyte SSD in my iMac, which is part of the Fusion Drive. Yes, I have a Fusion Drive iMac. So in case you're not familiar, a Fusion Drive is where you have a small SSD and a large hard drive and Mac 
OS literally fuses that together into a single logical drive. And it does some intelligent sort of shuffling files around under the hood. So your core OS files and anything you use frequently is stored on the SSD for performance reasons. But the bulk of your files are all stored on the hard drive portion, which was one terabytes. So basically, I blew away everything on the SSD part of the Fusion Drive and Ubuntu installed itself there. And it was purely coincidental that my Fusion Drive SSD was the same capacity as my thumb drive. If I'd gotten a 64 gigabyte thumb drive, or if I'd gotten something smaller, like say 16 gigabytes, I would have seen in the Ubuntu installer that it was installing on something that's 30 gigabytes, and I would have said, wait a minute, my thumb drive's not 30 gigabytes, it's 64 or 16 or whatever. And I would have known something was wrong. But instead, because it was the same capacity, I just, I, it didn't really occur to me. Like, I, I honestly had forgotten how fusion drives work exactly. So it didn't even, it didn't even register in my brain like, oh, I have an SSD in my iMac and a separate hard drive, and it might be showing me the SSD here. I certainly don't want to install on that. It just didn't occur to me. Now, I got to say, I put a little bit of blame here on Ubuntu. I feel like in the year 2019, <laughs> with an OS that's advertised as something that you can run on Mac hardware. I mean, they, they officially say you can do this. They don't hide that fact. I feel like their installer should be a little bit savvy enough to say, hey, it looks like you have Mac OS installed on this drive. Are you sure you would like to overwrite your Mac OS installation? I mean, come on please. <laughs> I can only assume they do that for Windows. And if they don't, shame on them. Shame on them. I mean, if you're trying out Linux for the first time, and you don't want to overwrite your core OS, whether that's Windows or Mac OS, or even another Linux you might be running, the installer should be smart enough to tell you, hey, here's what might happen. Are you sure this is what you want to do? Come on, people. But yes, I, you know, I, I do accept the blame here. I should have been more careful. I should have really, you know, looked at all the little strings of, you know, the drive descriptor and all the kind of stuff the installer was showing and sort of puzzle out what was going on. <sighs> so long story short, my Fusion Drive was toast. The, the sad truth is, even though the, the majority of my files were on the hard drive, which was, you know, byte for byte untouched, the file system itself was just completely destroyed. Like there was no way, I did a bunch of research on it. There's no way to restore an APFS file system where, you know, basically the whole table of contents, all the sort of metadata for that file system has been wiped out. You know, I would literally have to, you know, somehow get that hard drive out of the iMac and take it to some specialists that that literally just scrape bytes off the disk and try to figure out how to reconstruct files. And it takes forever and it's hugely expensive. And I didn't want to go to all that trouble, mainly because I knew I did have a time machine backup. However, my time machine backup was a week old and it did not include a ton of work I'd done on a new vlog episode. So <laughs> I guess that's kind of an announcement here. I was really far along on a cool new vlog episode. I took a road trip up to Seattle and other points around there in northwest Washington. Uh, but all that work I did was gone. So, yeah. So I went through the arduous task of wiping everything. It was actually really hard, surprisingly difficult to get my SSD and hard drive reconstructed back into a fresh, pristine fusion drive. Apple's commands to restore the Fusion Drive actually failed. <laughs> so I had to look up older instructions pre-Mojave to figure out how to get my SSD and my hard drive back together into a logical single drive that's formatted with APFS. Uh, so anyway, I did all that, started the Time Machine Restore. It did its thing. And then I finally tried to boot my computer again. And, well, it didn't work. It didn't work at first. Something went wrong. Uh, I was really frustrated. I'd done the entire Time Machine Restore, and yet my computer was not booting into macOS. At some point, it was just hanging, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. Trying to boot into command line uh, mode and see all the, all the Unix-y stuff under the hood that macOS was doing 
Uh, it just seemed like there were vague errors and hangs and couldn't figure out what was going on. So in desperation, what I did was I reformatted my USB stick and installed the macOS Mojave installer onto the USB stick. I did this from my laptop. Thank goodness I have a second Mac handy. Uh, so I got this macOS Mojave installer on my USB stick, booted my iMac up into that, and then installed macOS Mojave on top of my drive that already had the Time Machine backup. You know, it was helpful enough to do it sort of like an upgrade. So it just installed the core Mojave OS on top of all the files I already had. And then that worked. That worked. I got a bootable macOS install and I logged in and poked around a bit and was like, okay, yes, this worked. I have all my applications. It looks like everything's here. My user account's here. All my file. Wait, wait, what's going on here? <laughs> Where are all my photos? Yeah, I don't know what's going on here, but Time Machine is not foolproof. I didn't have the last three, well, two, two and a half months of photos. They had not been backed up. Of course, they're on iCloud. I use iCloud Photo Sync, so, you know, they could download the photos again off of iCloud. But that's not what I wanted. I wanted my photos. I wanted my photos all to get backed up. I have the option selected where Photos is supposed to keep all the photos on my local machine. It should not be optimizing. It should not be selectively syncing. It should have all of my photos on my huge one terabyte drive. And yet it did not back up everything for some reason. Only a week ago, it did not have all of my photos. I also noticed a couple of old podcast MP3s were missing. It was super weird. Like it just, at some point, Time Machine must have decided, uh, some of this stuff that was done recently, you, you probably don't care too much about that, right? I'm just not going to back it up. Uh, so frustrating. So at this point, I'm like super paranoid. It's hard to trust Time Machine anymore. I do have my time machine drive like permanently plugged into my computer now rather than just like doing it once a week or whatever. I have it plugged in constantly. So it's always backing everything up. And I'm like spot checking like, did it get this recent file? Did it get that recent file? Does this folder look complete? And I'm spot checking everything and I'm super paranoid, which is not great. So all in all, my iMac had a meltdown. And when I tried to get everything back up and running, I discovered that Apple <laughs> really was dropping the ball on some of this uh, install and restore and backup technology of theirs. So epic fail all around. But the good news is, at the moment, my iMac is working great. It's not like crashing or doing anything odd. It, it just seems like it's, it's back to its usual self for which I'm truly grateful. All right, that was kind of a downer, but we're going to get on to some more stuff here that's exciting and fun. First off, uh, I got an iPad Pro case off of Amazon. Uh, I, I was really considering what to do here because I had thought I wanted to get the Smart Keyboard Folio. I think Apple's done a good job with their latest Smart Keyboards for the new iPad Pros. Uh, so I wanted to get that and sort of have my little iPad Pro sandwich, as it were, <laughs> with the, you know, the, the folio case, it wraps around the back. And then on the front is basically the keyboard and that just folds out. So that's pretty nice. Um, but it's expensive. And it was out of stock. Like I, I couldn't get it. I, when I went to the Apple store to buy my iPad Pro 12.9 inch, they said, Oh, I'm sorry, we're out of stock on the smart keyboard folio. Uh, you could put in an order online or, or we could, uh, you know, have it on order here. It might arrive in a few weeks. And I was like, ah, that's all right. I'll deal with it later. And I looked it up on Apple's site. I, I might have looked it up on Amazon's site. It was just out of stock everywhere. So apparently these things are popular and Apple can't make them fast enough. <laughs> so that's interesting. But what I ended up doing, and I'm actually really happy about this now. So what I ended up doing was get a really cheap folio style case on Amazon. And I have a link in the show notes because I ended up really liking this case. I'm using it right now and I just really like it. It looks nice, you know, it looks like a really nice case, even though the materials aren't, you know, the most premium feel you'll get. Uh, it just, it looks good and, you know, looks are important to me. And perhaps even more importantly than that, it operates really well. 
So the iPad is is really snug in here, really protected. Um, I can you know position it kind of uh, at different angles for when I'm looking at it. Uh, it has a cool little pocket in the front, which I didn't even notice until a few days ago. I was like, oh, wait, what's this? Oh, this, there's a pocket on the front. You can put little cards or papers in there if you want to. Uh, it has a little loop for the Apple Pencil. So, you know, of course, the new Apple Pencil attaches magnetically to the side of the iPad Pro, which is great, and you can totally do that. Um, but if you want that pencil even more secure, like if you're bopping around a lot and you're afraid the pencil will lose its magnetic connection and just fall off, you can put it through this little loop instead, which is, you know, kind of in the same area there. So that's really handy. Um, the folio has a sort of a, a wrap around band. So you can, you know, put this band on and the folio is is closed and can't open because it has the band wrapped around. And so what I ended up doing here for a keyboard is uh, I actually had a spare Apple Magic Keyboard, the, the nice new wireless uh, Magic Keyboard. I had a spare one lying around. So that is my iPad Pro keyboard now. I just bring this with me everywhere. And in fact, I actually can place the keyboard on the screen and close the folio case and, you know, connect the band around so it's it's the case is secure and it actually has the keyboard as part of that iPad sandwich. <laughs> it totally works. Uh, so I can schlep around with this keyboard, at which I love. It's just, it's my favorite keyboard. So I, like, I don't really want any other keyboard per se, because the Magic Keyboard is my favorite. So I have this awesome keyboard that's very portable. It's very compact and lightweight for a keyboard. And it works great with the iPad Pro and the case and the Apple Pencil too. Ugh, I just, I love it all. It is so great. And this case is is really cheap. I mean, I paid less than 29 bucks for it. Um, I think it's like $28.99 right now. I actually got it for $27.99. Um, anyway, check out this case. Uh, you know, honestly, like even if it falls apart in six months, like at that price, who cares? Just buy a new one. In fact, <laughs> if you can, I encourage you to buy two, like get maybe a couple different colors. You'll have one as a backup. And even two of these cases is cheaper than a first party folio case from Apple or, or even a lot of the, the other ones out there. So I love this case. I'll probably do a video review of this whole setup at some point, um, but I wanted to tell you about it here. Next topic, I want to dive a little bit into Touch ID versus Face ID. Uh, there's been sort of a resurgence in discussion around Face ID and if Touch ID is actually better because uh, some of the Android phones coming out, particularly the new Samsung Galaxy phones, um, they actually still use uh, fingertip readers and, you know, have that sort of uh, finger-based biometrics. And so people are talking like, well, you know, sh are fingerprint readers still still viable, still a good thing? Is that better in some ways than Face ID? Is, is Face ID really all it was first cracked up to be in usage all this time? Um, so there's interesting discussion. I think, you know, it sort of is... Uh, yeah, I have no idea what the exact ratio is, but it seems like it's a little bit split down the middle where some people like Face ID, some people like Touch ID. Well, I don't have Face ID on a phone. I'm still using an iPhone 7 Plus, but I do have Face ID on my new iPad Pro. And, well, it's not perfect. Face ID is not perfect. You know, you have to be at the right angle. You can sometimes cover up the camera. Uh, this might be even more of a problem on the iPad, honestly, than the iPhone. I, you know, I don't think people usually hold their phones so that their thumb is over the top camera area, but uh, it does happen on the iPad. Uh, so Face ID is not perfect, but even in spite of its shortcomings, I love Face ID. I mean, I love the ability to just pick up my device and it just is unlocked. I just pick it up and it's unlocked. I just pick it up. I mean, <laughs> even now, like when I do it, I mean, I've had this device for weeks now and I, it hasn't gotten old. It, it hasn't gotten old for me. I pick up my device and it's unlocked. I don't have to touch anything. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to fiddle with anything. It just does it. You know, except on the occasions that it doesn't, in which case I just, you know, reposition my face or, you know, get a little bit closer or what have you, and then it works. But I really like it. It's 
particularly great with passwords because I do use the iCloud keychain feature for passwords and it integrates with whatever biometric system you have. So if you have Touch ID, you know, you go to a login form or whatever in Safari and it says, you know, Touch ID to load up your saved password and you do Touch ID and you get the login password filled in. Uh, well, with Face ID, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to like go through this motion of, yes, I'm going to approve getting a password for this login by placing my thumb here on this portion of the device. I don't have to do that with Face ID. It just does it. <laughs> I go to a login form. I want to you know sign into my favorite website or get into some app or whatever. And Face ID just does it. And so I really like that. Um, I also feel like there are times when, you know, maybe my fingers are wet or kind of, you know, sweaty or something weird's going on. And Touch ID doesn't always work. I'll have to like reposition my finger or I have to wipe off the sensor and then wipe my fingers. And you know, it gets real fiddly. I don't have that kind of problem with Face ID. Um, it's been pretty reasonable in terms of like if I'm wearing a hat or not, or like I have headphones on, like I've done lots of things to sort of change what's going on around my face. And for the most part, Face ID has always just figured it out and been fine. Uh, I think at one point I did like a second training. I don't know, this might be a newer feature in iOS since Face ID first came out, I'm not sure. Or maybe this is an iPad thing only, I'm not sure if the iPhones do this as well, but... I was able to do a second training on my face. So, you know, you do your initial training, but then if you go into settings, you actually have the ability to say, like, I would like to train an alternative appearance. Um, so I did that. I, I forget if I, like, did something where maybe the first time I had my, because uh, I kind of have long hair, the first time I might have had my hair in a ponytail, second time maybe I had hair, you know, cascading down onto my shoulders. I don't remember exactly, but I did something a little bit different to my appearance and did the retraining, and it's been super accurate ever since. So all in all, I'm a huge fan of Face ID, and personally, I don't think Apple should try to invest anything more in Touch ID. I don't think they should go, you know, back to it or do a, you know, like a new version maybe where you just touch somewhere on the screen and it's this new touch sensitive. Uh, yeah, forget it. I, I just don't think it's worth dealing with all that. I think Face ID is the way to go. I want to see it in all their devices. I want to see it on their Macs. I'd love to have Face ID like right on my Mac and just get into whatever I need to just with, you know, with my face in front of my computer. I want Face ID everywhere. So put me down in the camp of pro Face ID. Uh, another thing that's caused a lot of consternation with some people, been somewhat controversial, is this whole USB-C lifestyle and dongle town and all that. Uh, you know, Apple first went into this whole thing with the MacBook Pros a few years ago when they came out with only USB-C connection options. Uh, well, actually, I think it happened earlier than that. It might have been the release of the 12-inch of the MacBook where they have that single USB port, uh, which was super weird. <laughs> I'll, I'll admit, it was, it was very weird to have a Mac with just a single port with this new sort of USB-C connector, and everyone's like, what the hell is that? Um, but at this point, you know, a few years in, uh, USB-C has matured quite a bit, but some people are still grumpy about it. I don't have a laptop with USB-C. My MacBook Pro is still the, um, uh, what is it, the 2015 model, I believe. Uh, it, it, it's the model like right before they redesigned everything with the touch bars and USB-C and everything. So I don't have USB-C on my laptop. I do have it on my iMac. It's, it's actually Thunderbolt connectors, so you can do USB-C or Thunderbolt. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily need to use those because I have a bunch of standard USB-A ports on my iMac. So really, getting this new iPad Pro with the USB-C port there is my first real foray into daily usage of USB-C and getting into dongle town and all that. Um, so, you know, I, I just wanted to share a few thoughts on that. Um, I think having a universal modern port that can handle pretty much anything you can throw at it, you know, in theory, I'm not saying it's always going to work like this for everybody, that people have had some, some issues, but the theory of this one port to do everything, uh, I really like. And I actually really like the USB-C port 
connector style. Like it's it's similar in some ways to Lightning, but I think I actually like it better than Lightning. Uh, Lightning, you know, with the pins on the outside, I've always felt like it's a I don't know, kind of a little bit fragile in some way. And when you you know click it into a port, sometimes it feels a little bit flimsy, like you're not sure it got in there securely. Uh, for whatever reason, with USB-C, like this thing feels solid. Like first of all, the the outside of the little connector part there is just metal. The pins are on the inside, so that's how it's different than Lightning. Um, and uh, whether it's on my iPad Pro or on my iMac, uh, these USB-C ports feel like really solid, really secure. Like you you almost kind of have to <laughs> to shove the connector into the port. Like it's really snug. And I kind of like that because I like feeling like something's solidly connected and it's not just going to kind of fizzle and fall out if you look at it sideways. So I like the design of USB-C. Um, and as far as Dongletown goes, this is where people really get tripped up. Um, you know, with the iPad Pro, it's a little bit different because you had to do Dongletown all along. Like, for example, you know, I'm using a USB audio interface here. I'm using my iPad Pro right now to record this episode. And I would have had to use a dongle anyway, because I don't have a lightning, I don't have a native lightning audio interface, and there are very few out there. Most of the audio interfaces are USB, so I would have had to use a USB audio interface with a USB to lightning dongle to get into, you know, a previous generation iPad. Um, and that didn't always work with lightning, because lightning's power output was meager, and so a lot of USB devices would throw up their hands and say, wah, I don't have enough power, I'm not going to work right. It was super frustrating. So for the iPad, going from lightning to USB-C is a huge upgrade, just massive. I mean, I can plug my MIDI keyboard in, no problem. It lights up, everything works great. I can plug my audio interface in, works great. I can plug a wired USB keyboard in, and that works. And uh, in the near future, this is going to require a software update from Apple, but uh, everyone's pretty confident that this is coming, where you can plug a USB stick into your iPad and be able to access files on there and copy stuff to and from. Um, so, you know, for the iPad, going from Lightning to USB-C is a huge upgrade. Now, I realize for people that use Macs, and they're going from USB-A to USB-C, you know, I can understand some of the frustrations there where, you know, you have to have a dongle for everything and some of the hubs out there where it's like a USB-C hub that provides USB-A and other things, uh, they've been kind of flaky, they've been kind of frustrating. So, you know, I understand that. Uh, and, uh, you know, I can understand frustrations with... Uh, you know, trying to figure out like which cables work for USB versus Thunderbolt and and does this computer support this device? Oh no, this is only a USB-C computer, like say the 12 inch MacBook. Uh, this doesn't support this thing, which is actually Thunderbolt, even though it uses the same USB-C style cable. <sighs> you know, I, I listen, I understand all of those frustrations. All I'm saying is in theory, USB-C really is an improvement. It's great to have this, this nice little solid connector that can just do anything you want it to do pretty much. That's the theory. So whether the reality is quite arrived there yet or not, that's up for debate. Um, you know, Maybe what that uh, link was talking about earlier regarding USB 4, maybe that's the, the nirvana we all dream of. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely bullish on USB-C right now, and having it on this iPad Pro here is absolutely fantastic. Let's see, what's next? A few thoughts on Marzipan and that whole thing. Uh, you know, I talked to you a little bit about what Marzipan is earlier. I shared the link about the tool Marzipanify. Uh, so it, it's interesting, you know, you've seen a few people out there who are, you know, not Apple uh, play around with these tools and see if they can get their iOS apps running on the Mac. And so it's interesting to see what works and what doesn't. Again, getting in a little bit into what the controversy is here, uh, I, I think that there's a lot of uh, <laughs> understandable unease in some quarters about this idea that the Mac is going to be invaded by iOS apps that are 
badly ported to the Mac and don't feel like native Mac apps and feel it's like, you know, what the heck is this thing that just came up on my screen? It looks like an iPhone app just suddenly popped up on my screen, like this widgety thing. <laughs> what is this doing here? This doesn't feel like a Mac app. Um, you know, I, I can sympathize with that. Um, I think I think the fear here that's legit, you know, I, I share this concern is is the idea that uh, developers will give up on great Mac apps that they've worked on or maybe are thinking about working on and will instead just take an iOS app and port it to the Mac and call it a day. Um, you know, I don't think that would be good for the Mac. The, the Mac needs really high quality, really full-featured, you know, <laughs> to use the old uh, Steve Jobs analogy of car versus truck, like the reason a lot of people still use Macs are because they want those trucks. They want those workhorses. They want all the power. They want all the force. You know, they, they want to go all in on the geeky depths of their workflows. And so they need solid, high-quality Mac apps. And so, you know, that that's that's my feeling too. Like I want Mac apps. I don't want to boot up my iMac or my laptop and see a bunch of iPhone and iPad apps all over my screen. Like I love my iPad Pro. I'll just use that. I love my iPhone. I'll just use that. Why would I use a Mac if it's just running all the same software <laughs> with the same capabilities that I can get just, you know, on an actual iPad or iPhone? Um, so that's one side of the equation. However, what I am excited about and what I actually think will happen, at least in the near term, is we'll get a bunch of software we aren't getting on the Mac. So, you know, a lot of people have talked about entertainment apps, for example. So imagine you can go to your Mac and click an icon and you have Netflix running. Not Netflix in a browser, but an actual Netflix app with all the same features that you would get in your Netflix on iOS app. Uh, you know, beautiful presentation, really fast and clean interface, you know, videos come up and everything works really well. Um, you know, yes, you can access that stuff in the browser and it's fine. Um, but, you know, a, a native iOS app is usually going to be a better UX than just a web app, um, you know, particularly in, in this area of, of entertainment and multimedia and and definitely games like, you know, <laughs> uh, try as they might. Uh, the, the, the web is not the best platform for gaming, <laughs> to say the least. And, you know, hats off to people that are trying to develop uh, HTML5 based games and do like web based games in your browser. Like, that's cool. But, you know, really, like any games people are playing are either going to be mobile phone games or maybe iPad games or console games. And or, well, I should say, and the third category of PC gaming. Now, PC gaming, like the kind of style games and the, the, the kind of thing people are going for when they get into PC gaming, uh, there's just not a lot of that <laughs> on the Mac. I mean, you know, occasionally you can find a Mac port of a PC game. But, um, you know, I, I'm not a gamer, so this is not my area of expertise. But anytime I've heard even like hardcore Mac fans, like, you know, John Syracuse, for example, like hardcore Mac fans that are also into gaming, like they're the first to admit the Mac is not a great gaming platform. But with mobile games, clearly iOS has a great lead here. There are tons of games for iOS, the very popular category. Uh, a lot of people enjoy playing iOS games. And so the idea that you could take some of the popular iOS games and easily port those over to the Mac, you know, and suddenly you can uh, run this game that you've enjoyed on your little iPhone, you can now enjoy on this big Mac screen on your laptop, or even a huge screen like iMac, for example, uh, that becomes really tempting. So for games, for some of the entertainment stuff out there, like multimedia kind of stuff, maybe educational apps, uh, maybe some of the the sort of one-off like business enterprise apps. Like not a lot of people maybe realize this in consumer land, but iOS has become really popular in the enterprise. I mean, huge companies like you know years ago IBM announced big initiatives around iOS, and so you know lots of people are out there using iPads in the field for different reasons. Uh, so there's all these enterprise apps out there now. Um, and it's tempting to think that some of that come over to the Mac as well. So, you know, maybe you carry around a, a small portable little iPad to do some stuff in the field. And then when you get back to your desk, you want to, you know, have sort of a more typical office friendly 
desktop computing experience, but maybe uh, you know maybe the idea of having a separate web app or a separate native Mac app isn't uh, in the cart. So instead, you could just run the same app on your big desktop Mac. So I can just see lots of scenarios where software that just has not been available on the Mac and likely won't come to the Mac in any way, shape, or form in any time in the future, uh, suddenly that becomes possible with Marzipan. Suddenly you can take these iOS apps, do a, a very small amount of work, and suddenly, poof, they'll now run on the Mac. I think that gives the Mac platform a huge shot in the arm and makes it all that more appealing as a platform. You know, I, I honestly think we could see sales skyrocket. Well, maybe not skyrocket, but but certainly go up dramatically uh, once it becomes clear that, you know, these big, powerful, awesome machines that can run all the stuff that you can run on a Mac can now also run all these amazing iOS apps. Uh, I don't want to see Mac apps go away. I don't want to see professional Mac apps wither on the vine. I don't want to see developers give up on their Mac apps and just focus on iOS apps and port them over to the Mac. I don't want to see all that. Uh, that's a you know potential danger here. But I think the the net gain of getting software that you just wouldn't see on the Mac ever likely, at seeing those come to the Mac, I think overall that's a net gain. Next up, my WWDC 2019 wish list. I I haven't really sat down and and cataloged a bunch, so I'll just throw a few things out that have been rolling around in my brain. And this is going to be pretty much iPad-centric because, honestly, uh, my iPhone works fine. (laughs) Like I said, I'm still using an iPhone 7 Plus, so I'm actually kind of lazy and ambivalent in a way when it comes to my phone. Like, I just kind of want it to do what it does, and that's that. And I don't feel a big need to upgrade. I don't really have a lot of feature requests or things I wish are improved on my iPhone. But iPad's different. I'm using my iPad Pro now as basically my primary commuting device. (laughs) I have my MacBook Pro laptop. I have my iMac. I get a lot of work done on those, particularly in my day job as a web developer. But my go-to computer, like the thing I kind of instinctively reach for in the morning, the thing I'm probably using at night, the thing I'm kind of schlepping around at different times of the day, is my iPad Pro now. Like I'm just using it so much. And so... It's amazing, but it does have some shortcomings. And at this point, pretty much all of the shortcomings are on the software side. Like the hardware of the new iPad Pros is staggeringly good. I mean, this is some of the best hardware Apple has ever shipped. I don't want you to start telling me about, oh, back in the Steve Jobs era, like Tim Cook, he just he doesn't know what he's doing anymore. Apple is an innovative BS. The new iPad Pros are outstanding. Some of the best hardware I've ever seen from Apple in any era. But that's on the hardware side. On the software side, uh, still some problems. Still some problems with iOS. Um, I'll, I'll go through just a few of them. It's increasingly frustrating to me that there's no way to get a sandboxed terminal. Yes, I want a terminal. I really want a terminal. Please, please, Apple. Do something. Give me a Unix terminal. I don't care if it's totally sandbox. That's fine. Like, I just want to be able to tap an icon on my springboard and pop into a terminal and be able to run some terminal software. You know, get get the equivalent of homebrew running within this sandbox and be able to, you know, let me be able to go in there and run some Ruby scripts. Maybe I can boot up a Postgres server and run a database in the background uh, you know, give me a way to expose, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, maybe through Bonjour or something, some kind of domain name so I can go to, you know, foo.bar, whatever that is in my web browser and access a web server running in my sandboxed environment. Uh, you know, believe me, like, you don't have to do much. Just create this sandboxed environment where it can't touch anything else other than its own little environment. Give me a terminal. Let me run some Unix software. Let me do some web development on my iPad Pro proper, and I would be a happy camper. Like, this this would solve so many problems for me. I would love this. But <laughs> I'm not holding my breath. I, I'll be surprised if this happens in WWDC 2019. Uh, I'll be surprised if it happens. But if it does, I'll be, I'll be jumping with joy. Uh, so that's probably my top wish list item. 
Um, my next wish list item is something a lot of people are clamming for, which is it would really be great now that we have this awesome USB-C port. It would be really great if uh, iOS could support external storage. You know, we, we already have this files app. It's not perfect, but it works. It, it gets us a lot of the way there. You know, all we want is to be able to plug in, you know, an external drive, a USB stick, whatever, you know, plug it into that port and have that drive show up in files. And you can just go in there and it works the same way as any other file storage provider. You know, I, right now I can go in there and I can see Nextcloud, I can see iCloud Drive, I can see Dropbox, I can see, you know, all these different things. I can see working copy, which is an awesome Git app. I can have all my Git repos in there and just see them right through the files app, which is cool. Like all that already works. All I want to be able to do is plug in this external storage and poof, that shows up in files. That that doesn't seem like it should be terribly complicated. Uh, you know, there is the problem where suddenly that drive is offline because you've unplugged it or whatever. Um, but that's the same way with cloud storage too. Like you could be using cloud storage and all of a sudden your network connection drops off and, you know, that's not accessible either. So you know, iOS clearly already has some kind of mechanism to detect if files are available through the files, you know, subsystem, yes or no. Uh, it doesn't seem like it should be any different for external storage. So that's a big wish list item. My next item would be, uh, I wish Safari were a little bit smarter on iOS. It, it still feels a lot of the time like the Safari I'm using on my iPad Pro is a little bit of an older, funkier mobile browser. It doesn't feel like a full-fledged web browser in certain ways. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to get into all the little specifics, but uh, a lot of the problems I tend to run into are around uploading and downloading files. Sometimes I try to upload files and it just completely fails. I don't understand why. Like it allows me to select a file to upload. And then when I try to upload it, it's like Safari just says, nope, not going to upload that file. And then the back end of you know, whatever web service just freaks out because like there's no file. It's expecting you that you're uploading a file and it's getting blank. <laughs> it's getting nothing. And then you end up with like an incomplete post or something crashes and it's just really weird. And you know, I, I'm trying to figure out like, why does this happen? I sort of narrowed it down to cloud storage versus local storage. Uh, so for example, like if I copied a file somewhere into on my iPad, I usually use file browser biz for that. So, you know, I copy a file off of a cloud storage onto a local iPad storage location and then try to upload a file with that. And that usually works, except when it doesn't. <laughs> like even that has failed at least once for me, which was hugely frustrating. I also have problems sometimes trying to download a file. Like, you know, I'll get a download link in Safari, and sometimes it'll, you know, allow me to sort of get a preview of what that file is after it downloads and let me save it somewhere. But occasionally that doesn't work. It, it gets fiddly. Um, I've, I've just had some, some weird issues with that. Uh, I, I've had a little bit of luck using the Firefox browser. Like, even though the under-the-hood browser engine with Firefox is the same as Safari, uh, Firefox does supply sort of a smarter download history and kind of a list of files that you can access that have been downloaded. Um, so, so sometimes that's helped, but uh, a Apple just really needs to beef up. Like, I, I want a Safari Pro. <laughs> I want a Safari Pro on my iMac Pro. That's basically what I'm asking for. Probably my last wish list item is a little bit better multitasking. Um, you know, the split screen and the drag and drop and all that kind of stuff uh, does get you a lot of the way where you need to go. You know, I, I make use of that stuff all the time and it's fine. Um, but I, I feel like, you know, I'm still fiddling around a bit on my touch screen here trying to get things where I want. And it just feels like it should be smoother. It feels like it should be a little bit more straightforward to just sort of be able to tell iOS, like, I want this thing over here, I want this thing over there, and I want this other thing over there. And just, you know, allow me to keep that set up for this grouping of apps. And for some other grouping of apps, I want it to be this other thing. You know, maybe they can take spaces, the spaces idea from from the Mac and do something with that. Um, uh, but basically, uh, you know, I just want to be able to set up like sort of these, these different work areas and within these different work areas have different configurations of things. And I want that to be really easy to set up and, and sort of, you know, persistible. Uh, maybe it's even something it can re like remember. So maybe if I boot up my iPad Pro cold, 
and you know, none of these app combos are are there yet. Maybe I can like you know select a bookmark or some kind of you know saved workspace or something and say make my iPad look like this now and poof everything gets arranged the way I want it. Uh, I don't know. There's lots of ideas we could all start throwing out, but I really hope WWDC 2019 sees a big upgrade to multitasking on the iPad. And that's it for my wish list. A uh, couple, couple quick topics to get into before we wrap things up. So there's been some discussion lately. Uh, once again, the, the, the topics that don't go away, <laughs> a discussion around OLED screens versus LCD screens. And, you know, I've been thinking about this kind of in the back of my mind off and on, like, how do I feel about OLED? Like, I don't know. I can't quite put my finger on, like, there's something a little bit off about this because, you know, I, I don't own one of the new OLED iPhones. I don't have an iPhone 10 or 10s or whatever. Um, but I've tried them out a few times in the Apple stores. I see other people using them. And there's just some, there's something about the screen that's just been off for me. And uh, I was listening, uh, I believe it was a, an episode of the talk show with John Gruber. Um, either John or his guests were saying something about they, they felt like like uh, OLED screens looked really great with like movies or like content where you want those deep, rich blacks and those high contrast colors and all that. And, you know, that looks stellar. But when you're just reading text on a, like a web page, uh, it, it's actually kind of poor, like the quality isn't as good as LCD. And I was like, yes, that is it. That, that, that you, you put your finger on what's going on here. I feel the same way. When I, when I look at the OLED screens, like I even noticed this on my Apple watch when I first got it, like I kind of had to get used to it, but there's something about the OLED screen where seeing text, you know, it's supposed to be this, this crisp, you know, retina display text Somehow it just doesn't look quite right to me. I don't know if it, it's like messing with my glasses, like the, the lenses on my glasses and the way the light is being emitted by the OLED display. I, like, it's, I can't describe what's going on, but there's something about the way text looks that bothers me. And it's not that way with LCD. Like I look at text on LCD displays all the time every day on my computers, on my iPhone, on my iPad. And I just love the way text looks, particularly with True Tone. I feel like like the modern True Tone LCD displays from Apple have been just mind-blowingly good. Like I, I still, like right now, <laughs> I'm looking at my iPad Pro screen right now as I'm recording this, and I just marvel at how good this display is. The text is so crisp, so sharp, so readable. I mean, I like reading text on my screens better than most of the time on, on paper on, in a book or something. Like, I just love the way text looks on these modern LCD displays. And then I go see an OLED display at the Apple store or somebody, you know, on the train next to me using a new iPhone. And I kind of glance at what they're doing and I'm like, ugh, this doesn't look right to me. Anyway, all that to say, if I were to buy a new iPhone today... I'd probably get the iPhone XR because I don't want an OLED display. I want to stick with LCD. I think for the kinds of things I typically do on my phone, I like the way LCD screens look. I don't really watch movies on my iPhone. I don't need those deep, rich blacks for the most part. Um, you know, maybe dark mode in an app would look cool, but but basically, you know, most of the time I'm reading text, I'm scrolling through a timeline or reading a blog post or looking at an email, and I want that really awesome, crisp way text looks on LCD. Uh, so, you know, your mileage may vary, but I'm sticking with LCD for now. And finally, yes, I know this has been a lot of ground to cover. I, I've sort of stored up a lot of, <laughs> a lot of thoughts and topics in Apple world for this mega Apple episode. Uh, so final topic here is just a little bit of thinking around the future of the Mac Pro and the MacBook Pro. Um, you know, Apple famously said a couple years ago now that they had painted themselves into a thermal corner with the trash can design <laughs> of the Mac Pro. Uh, that design clearly did not work out. And so they're, they're in the process of rebuilding everything you know, basically from scratch, a whole new product. We don't know very much about it yet, but it's supposed to be very modular, very upgradable. The very latest in top shelf performance, like it's going to be 
you know, the machine for the pro of the pros. And uh, I'll be very surprised and actually dismayed if we don't see at least a good sneak peek of this at WWDC 2019. I actually think if they get through the whole keynote there and don't mention the Mac Pro, there will be rioting in the streets. <laughs> so they've got to do something. Um, but I'm excited about this. Not because I'm in the market for a Mac Pro. I'll be very surprised if I buy one personally. Um, just because A, I expect it to be very expensive. And B, I don't necessarily need all that power. Uh, my iMac I have right now works fine for editing 2080p video or working in audio projects. Um, maybe if I were doing a lot with 4K video, I'd want a beefier machine, but I won't be doing that anytime soon because I don't have a camera that supports 4K. Um, so I'm not in the market for a Mac Pro. I suspect a lot of people that are sort of uh, geeking out over the idea of a Mac Pro aren't necessarily going to buy one right away themselves. But as some folks have put it, you know, you you want those performance race car sort of products in your product line. You want those those halo products where it's like, you know, you're drawn in looking at this just incredible, like wild, <laughs> incredibly overpriced, but just blow away product <laughs> like what I did there. <laughs> Uh, you know, you want that kind of product in a product line, even if not a lot of people buy it, even if it's, you know, in some respects, a curiosity more than a, you know, really <laughs> top selling product. Um, you need that in your product line. You need that aspirational product to get people excited. And, you know, Apple really needs that. The iMac Pro is a cool product. I mean, that thing really flies. I know uh, Marco Arment, for example, uh, the guy behind Overcast and one of the hosts of ATP, a uh, wonderful podcast. Um, you know, he loves his iMac Pro. He's really impressed with it. He, he's uh, using it all the time for stuff. So, you know, the iMac Pro is a great machine, but Apple really needs that top of the line computer that's just a computer that can do anything you want to throw at it. And so they know this. That's why they're working on this new Mac Pro. I'm really excited to see what they come up with. And I expect we'll get a lot more information coming to us in the next few months. Um, so let me, let me share some thoughts about the MacBook Pro. Because the MacBook Pro should be that top-of-the-line product, that, that you know, whiz-bang, high-performance product uh, in laptop form factor. And, uh, oh, man... Oh man, the 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 MacBook Pro lineup right now is is kind of depressing. I just don't feel like the current design of these machines is what most people want. I don't feel like Apple has has gone in the right direction with that model. Um, it's uh, to to, uh, to to take that phrase. I think they've painted themselves into a thermal corner on the laptop line a little bit as well with the way those MacBook Pros got designed. Um, as someone who is using a, you know, a MacBook Pro from a few years ago, that I, I just feel like it's built like a tank. I mean, this MacBook Pro ha has been with me. It's been through some stuff, and it just works. It just works, and it works well. It is solid. The keyboard is solid. The hardware is solid. It has all the ports that I need. This, you know, even though it's this little 13-inch computer, uh, it just has always felt like a workhorse. And that's what people need from pro hardware. You know, if someone wants to get a laptop just to, you know, kind of goof around with it, you know, check their email, look at some websites, maybe get a little bit of work done for a, you know, a test or whatever, uh, you know, do some social media, uh, watch a movie, like, you know, you can do all those things on a, on a, very run-of-the-mill laptop. That's cool. A lot of people love the MacBook Air line, and you know they they use those quite well. Um, I think increasingly a lot of the sort of casual computing tasks are are being well served by the iPad line, uh, which which makes it all the more important to have pro hardware on the laptop side of things. And I just don't feel like the MacBook Pro line right now feels like the pro hardware that. Apple fans and Apple customers deserve. Um, so, you know, I won't rehash all of the ground that's been rehashed <laughs> uh, ad nauseum on, on other podcasts, but uh, I'm on record saying I, I am not impressed 
by the MacBook Pro lineup as it is today. And I really hope this changes. I hope, you know, maybe not WWDC, maybe that's too much to hope for, but possibly later in the year. But hopefully sometime this year, we get to see a glimpse into a new MacBook Pro design, a new model, a new form factor, a new configuration, a new way of thinking about this product. Uh, I, I just, I, we need to see new thinking from Apple about what Pro notebook machines are. And we need to see this sooner rather than later. So I really hope, you know, at least sometime this year, if not at WWDC, maybe in the fall, I really hope we get to see something new from Apple in this Pro laptop lineup. All right. Uh, gosh, that was a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> thanks for your patience. Thanks for lasting this long. And uh, yeah, you, you probably don't want to hear me talk anymore. So this is now the end. Thanks for listening. Go to jaredwhite.com for everything that I do, pretty much. It's all there. And I'll see you next time. Bye.